Welcome to the Refine Your Health podcast with Dr. Dion. I'm a primary care physician, and now I can happily add podcaster. Tune in to each episode to hear great information on improving health outcomes, disease prevention, and overall community health advocacy. Thanks for listening. Now let's jump into today's episode to improve your health. Hello, listeners. It is your host, Dr. Dion. Today's episode will be focusing on diabetes, and there is no better time than now because November is considered American Diabetes Month. You may be asking yourself, why is an entire month dedicated to diabetes? Well, I'm sure if you think about it, you have likely been impacted in some form or fashion by diabetes, whether it's personally, a family member, and our friend, possible coworkers, or you may just know of someone who's dealing with diabetes. In addition, let me just give you some statistics to even go along with, with why we should be talking about diabetes. According to the Center for Disease Control, greater than 34 million people have diabetes, and one in five don't even know that they even have it. Diabetes is number one cause of kidney failure, blindness, and also you may hear about lower limb amputation. Um, that's when you hear about like a relative or someone losing um, a toe, foot, losing a below the knee limb or even above the knee. Also, in the last 20 years, the number of adults diagnosed with diabetes has more than doubled. So some of you may already know what diabetes is, but most uh, definitions that I hear from people that are you know, not in the medical field is that they say, oh, I just have high blood sugar. However, they don't know why they have high blood sugar. So let's just talk about what is diabetes. Diabetes is a health condition that affects how your body turns food into energy. So what normally happens when you consume food on a daily basis, whether it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, or snack, when the food is consumed, our body is to break that food down into glucose or what is known as blood sugar, and it's released into our blood. When our blood sugars goes up, it signals an organ in our body called the pancreas to release insulin. Insulin acts as a signal for the blood sugar or glucose to be pulled out of our bloodstream into different cells in our body, which make up our different organs in order to be used as energy by our body. Therefore, diabetes occurs when there is a defect in the function of how the pancreas itself um, produces insulin or the recognition in the body itself to respond appropriately to insulin when it's released in the bloodstream. So what are the types of diabetes? There are three main types of diabetes. Type 1 diabetes usually occurs in 5 to 10% of the individuals diagnosed with diabetes. And this type of diabetes is when the body has an autoimmune response, which basically the body attacking itself, which is involving the pancreas, which is the organ that I kind of talked about earlier that produces insulin. So when your body attacks itself and it affects the pancreas, you're not able to produce insulin. And as you know, we've talked about earlier is that insulin is used to pull the blood sugar out of the bloodstream in order to have it be taken up by the cells in your body to use it as energy. So when that's defective, you have high sugar flowing around in your bloodstream and you can't get rid of it. So that's why a majority of these individuals require some form of insulin for management. Another type of diabetes is type two. And this is the most common one that many people in the U.S. deal with. It makes up 90 to 95% of the individuals diagnosed with diabetes. And basically, it's when your body either doesn't 
make enough insulin or it doesn't respond appropriately to insulin when it's released. And the third type of diabetes is gestational diabetes. And that just typically occurs um, during pregnancy. And usually once the mother delivers the child, usually this particular type of diabetes resolves. Now let's talk about another form of diabetes, which is not actually diabetes itself, borderline diabetes. Many people have uh, said that, or some people say I have a little bit of blood sugar issue. So it is basically when people have higher than normal blood sugar circulating in the bloodstream, which is not at the level that would be considered diabetes. But the interesting thing about this group is that the number of people that are dealing with prediabetes or borderline risk for um, diabetes is that it makes up a large percentage of the U.S. population. It says, as far as the CDC website, that 88 million people have prediabetes. So basically, you're looking at greater than one in three individuals walking around here in the U.S. And they say 84% don't even know that they even have it. So this is an, a large group that may potentially put you at risk for developing diabetes if you're not fully aware that you have it and you're not going to routine primary care visits for routine physicals to have your screening. Okay, so let's talk about the risk factors for uh, type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So type 1, usually there's a family history of diabetes. That's a risk factor. Also, age plays a role because this type of diabetes mostly occurs in a child, a teen, or young adult. Also, race may play a role. Caucasians more than likely develop this type of diabetes compared to African Americans and Hispanics. So let's look at type 2. Type 2 risk factors are prediabetes, which I kind of talked to you guys about, is that it makes up a large group of individuals in the U.S. who don't even know that they're walking around with prediabetes. Another risk, I should say, um, is being overweight. Age plays a role, being 45 plus years of age, a relative with a history of type 2 diabetes, not being physically active. So, you know, you're supposed to be exercising at least two and a half hours per week. Also, another risk factor is history of gestational diabetes. That's that type of diabetes that you have during pregnancy in this particular group. It's more prevalent in African-Americans, Hispanics, as well as American Indians. The risk factors for prediabetes is similar to type 2 diabetes. Now for gestational diabetes, what puts you at risk is a previous pregnancy with gestational diabetes, giving birth to a baby that's greater than 9 pounds, being overweight greater than 25 years of age. Race plays a role being African-American, Hispanic, American, Indian, or Pacific Islander. Another risk factor for the gestational diabetes group is a hormone disorder called polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now you may be asking yourself, okay, doc, what are the signs and symptoms do I, that I need to be looking out for to see if I need to go get screened? Because you're saying that greater than 34 million who have diabetes of this group, one in five don't even know that they have it compared to 88 million people who have prediabetes. However, 84% of this number, people don't know that they even have it. So some of the symptoms that you may have if you potentially may be at risk for developing diabetes or even have prediabetes um, risk factors is that you urinate a lot, very thirsty, losing weight without trying. You may have some numbness in or tingling in your hands or feet, feeling very tired, dry skin, 
You have sores that heal very slowly. You have more frequent infections than normal, blurry vision. So those are some of the most common that are across the board for diabetes. However, you may have some additional symptoms such as in type one, where or you may be exhibiting nausea, vomiting symptoms, stomach pains, and this can develop over a few weeks to months. In type two, it can occur over years, these symptoms. And sometimes you may not even have symptoms at all. Now, typically, you know, some people ask, okay, how, what about pregnancy? How would I know? Well, typically during pregnancy, all women are typically screened for gestational diabetes during their pregnancy. Screening for gestational diabetes usually takes place during pregnancy between 24 to 28 weeks of pregnancy. And many OBGYN physicians likes to use the glucose tolerance test. Basically, patients fast for overnight and they are given a sugary liquid to consume and they just check their blood sugars at one hour, two hours and three hours afterwards to see what their blood sugars response is to consuming this particular liquid. And from there, they diagnose patients with gestational diabetes based on if their blood sugars are above 200. So if you're going to be diagnosed, it'll be found out during that time. Therefore, I encourage any of my listeners out there, or if you may know of people that may be having some of these symptoms, that you seek immediate medical attention for a further evaluation to be screened for diabetes. Now, when you go to the doctor's office, you may be wondering, how is it diagnosed? We've already discussed in detail the screening process for gestational diabetes. However, for those patients that are not pregnant, this is a little bit more specific of how we diagnose at a routine doctor's office visit for patients, either at a physical or a visit where they may be exhibiting potential symptoms. So either they'll check a fasting blood sugar where basically you haven't had anything to eat or drink for about eight hours. If it's greater than 126, then you're at higher risk for being diagnosed with diabetes. And if they just do a random blood sugar, that means you've, you know, you've been eating something and they, you just show up to the doctor's office and they check it and it shows that your blood sugar is greater than 200. Now, there's a confirmatory test that I like to use a lot in my office, and that is the hemoglobin A1C. I'm sure many individuals living with diabetes uh, are well aware of what that is. Well, an A1C is telling me how much blood sugar on average over the past three months that your blood sugar levels um, are at. And if it's greater than 6.5, then it's likely that you have diabetes. Now, if you're borderline or that pre-diabetic range, an A1C between 5.7 to 6.4% is what is considered borderline diabetes. And let's say they get a fasting blood sugar on you and you go to the um, the doctor's office, let's say for a physical, and they screen um, your blood sugar at that time and you've been fasting. And if it ranges between 100 to 125 as far as your blood sugar, then it's more most likely that you are at risk for a diagnosis of prediabetes. Now, listeners, don't be surprised. Let's say you show up for a routine screening and your blood sugar, they try to check it and it's too high to read. And that means that your blood sugars uh, are significantly high and that you may be at risk for what we call diabetic ketoacidosis, where you can get really sick. Even though you may not be exhibiting any symptoms or you may have mild symptoms, 
more than likely your primary care doctor or the doctor that you end up seeing will send you to the emergency room so they can lower your blood sugar under an, a controlled environment where it's not lowered too fast, where that also can be an issue of you becoming really sick. So those are some indications of referral to the hospital for evaluation. If your blood sugars, when you go through screening, is too high to read, or maybe your A1C is greater than 14 on the A1C machine. So I get this all the time. People ask, you know, once you're diagnosed with diabetes, um, they ask, okay, is there a cure for it? There's no known cure yet for diabetes. However, there is a way to control it without medication intervention if your levels are within a reasonable range where um, you can manage it through healthy nutrition as well as exercise. However, management is individualized for each patient. In regards to nutrition and controlling um, diabetes is that there's one method of carb counting, which is considered a little bit too extensive for this episode, but hopefully I'll get into that at another time and go into a little bit more detail. However, the other option is just eating, you know, healthier in regards to a method which I love, love, love that's on the American Diabetes Association website called the diabetes plate method and I often pull this website up during the office visit and kind of go through it with my uh, patients who have been diagnosed with diabetes or even my patients that have been diagnosed with pre-diabetes and it's so simple all you need is basically a plate half of your plate is made up of non-starchy vegetables examples include broccoli cauliflower cabbage mushrooms okra green beans bell pepper, spinach, other leafy green vegetables, squash, tomatoes. And then a quarter of your plate is made up of your lean protein foods, such as chicken, turkey, eggs, some type of beef, um, your seafood, lean pork. And if you're more plant-based, that's more of your beans, your lentils, your hummus. Um, As far as the last quarter of your plate that's made up of the carbohydrate food so that's your whole grain such as brown rice oatmeal and whole grain products such as breads and pastas starchy vegetables such as squash green peas pumpkin black beans Um, it could be fruits and dry fruit your dairy products such as milk yogurt and in regards to beverages Either it's best to drink water or a low calorie drink such as unsweetened tea, unsweetened coffee. You can have sparkling water or flavored water, diet soda or diet drinks. I really like this method and a lot of the patients that I see in the office who have been diagnosed with uh, diabetes or pre-diabetes like it because it's really simple and it's easy to follow when they get home. The website also has a link to purchase a diabetes cookbook. Also, it has access to quick recipes. So it is a great resource. So I will definitely put this website link for the Diabetes Association website in the show notes so you can have easy access whenever you need it. In addition, I think it's a great website because if you need a sense of community with other people who may be dealing with diabetes, it's a great community to have access to online to support each other as well as a great resource for information about diabetes pre-diabetes and things of that nature 
So let's transition to talk about a word that is in many people's vocabularies considered a curse word, and that is exercise. Many people do not like to exercise. They find it difficult to be motivated to do it. They have issues of saying that they don't have enough time to do it, but we need to exercise. We have plenty of time during the week. We just need to make sure that we prioritize it. Now, I have individuals that I come in contact with and say, well, I have a physical job. I walk a lot. Well, that's nice. It's great and that gets you moving. But what we consider some form of exercise, you need to be breaking a sweat with it. So that means if you're just doing a lot of walking with your job, that means you're probably not exerting enough energy to burn a significant amount of calories. So what is considered normal adult physical activity that we should be doing every week. And that is moderate exercise, at least two and a half hours per week. Many of us waste time watching a movie in that amount of time, whether it be some cardio, working out on a bike, jogging, going to some type of fitness class, or doing something at home now since um, many fitness centers are not open or at capacity, or some people may not even feel comfortable going to a fitness uh, center or class unless it's outdoors and they can physically distance. But I'm currently working out virtually where I have classes either online or you have these fitness channels that you have access to through cable. So this pandemic is forcing people to be creative as far as getting their physical fitness in per week. But we can do it as long as we make it a priority. Now, if you can't do moderate exercise of at least two and a half hours per week, then there's vigorous exercise such as like what you would consider like a boot camp almost. And that's just 75 minutes. So that's an hour and 15 minutes per week. Now you do not have to work out daily. It just needs to add up to be either that two and a half hours of moderate exercise or the 75 minutes, or I should say an hour and 15 minutes of vigorous exercise where that's very high intense activity. And we should also include a couple of days of strength training. Usually you should focus upper body one day and the other day, lower body. And usually it's recommended that you use either resistance bands, which I'm a big fan of because I don't like the uh, free weights too much. And especially since I don't have um, access to a gym at this point. You can also use the machines if you have um, access to a personal fitness um, machine at home or at the gym. Please, please, please do not forget before embarking on a new exercise program, please consult your physician. Seeing that we've talked about healthy nutrition as well as exercise, which are great ways to control your blood sugar, especially as it relates to a diagnosis of diabetes as well as prediabetes. However, there may be instances where a patient may need to be started on medication right away, just depends on what their A1C is, what their blood sugar monitoring at home is. And a lot of times what I tell patients to do is that they definitely need to have a, what we call a glucometer, which is used to a, or a blood sugar machine to test your blood sugars at home to monitor what your blood sugars are fasting as well as um, after meals. So there are different ways as in regards to medication to manage diabetes. Let's talk about type one. So we've already talked about what happens in type one diabetes and that it's almost like an autoimmune attack on the body where it attacks basically the pancreas where it can't produce insulin which can break down the blood sugar that we consume from all the different foods that we 
consume. And so if that's an issue, then the best medication to manage that will be insulin. So you hear a lot of these patients being started on insulin as well as possibly an insulin pump. And so as we transition to type two diabetes, either, you know, it's typically the exercise, nutrition, which is also important for type one diabetes. However, some some of these things are often um, tried first. However, like I said previously, if it's severe enough where your blood sugars are too elevated, then you may need to be put on medications, either pills or some type of injectable um, medication. So you may have heard of medications such as metformin or glipizide. I'm not going to go all into the different types of medications in their classes because that's a whole different episode. Some of you've heard of some of these medications. You've also probably heard of some other oral medications such as Invacana or Jardians and then some of the injectable medications such as Trulicity, Victoza, and then the most uh, common such as like insulin, like Lantus or Levomir, some of those um, types of medication. And then the fast acting insulin that you give before meals if you have to be put on insulin. So there are a variety of ways to treat it, but these medications work in a way, especially the oral medications and the injectables that are not necessarily insulin, work uh, in the body where it either increases your cell sensitivity to pull in the blood sugar into the cells or produce the revving up of insulin within your body so that it can break down the sugar that you may consume in your body. And so there are different ways to basically manage diabetes more so in a type 2 diabetic patient versus someone that's been diagnosed with type 1. And you may say, okay, how are these things monitored in the doctor's office? So like I said, a lot of it relies on, you know, healthy nutrition, as well as exercise and being compliant with the medication. And so the doctor's office, when you go to see a physician, will monitor your A1C. And that's something that's typically done every three months or every six months, depends on how well controlled you are. And as well as you monitoring your blood sugars at home. Now, if your blood sugars are at goal, let's say your fasting goal should be between 130 to 140 in the morning fasting. So that's before you eat breakfast or um, going eight hours without food and you check it. Now, two hours um, after a meal shouldn't be higher than 180. So that tells me that you are well controlled with the medication if you're on any, as well as it compliance with your nutrition plan. However, that number may be a little bit higher in regards to my more mature patient population with diabetes, such as my 65 years and above uh, patient population. And also um, the goal A1C that we would like for younger patients, especially the patients less than age 65, would be less than seven. Now, I'm more specific in regards to that in that your A1C should be less than 7%. However, as it relates to the elderly population greater than 65, especially if they have comorbidities such as heart disease and things of that nature, you don't want to be too aggressive with lowering the blood sugar to less than seven. So goal for this particular patient population should be less than 8% because if you lower it too uh, aggressively in this patient population, it can cause its own secondary complications um, to this patient population. So those are the ways that we kind of look at monitoring blood sugar. Now, let's say I check their A1C and their A1C is 12%. 
that is not good because like I said, the goal should be less than 7% for the younger population and less than eight for the, my more mature population greater than 65. So that tells me what your blood sugars have been averaging for the past three months on a daily basis. So that tells me that if you have an A1C of 12%, for example, that means your blood sugars have been averaging close to 300 on a daily basis. Therefore, so when I have a patient come into the office and say, well, doc, it's probably because I had that piece of cheesecake late the other night. And I'm like, "Mm, not quite, because that A1C tells me what your blood sugars have been averaging for the past three months on a daily basis. So a slip up a couple of nights ago, that's not going to cause an A1C percentage of 12%. So that tells me that you may have been having cheesecake for the past three months every other night for the entire three months. So I usually tell them, nice try, because, yeah, this test is usually accurate in regards to how well patients are controlling their blood sugar. So either there needs to be some adjustment in your dietary choices, as well as the medications that may be used to treat their blood sugar. I tell patients that the A1C is like my truth serum because that's when I started getting patients. Okay, well, maybe I haven't been the best with the diet. I've been skipping the medications because um, it makes me feel this type of way or potential side effects. Things like that needs to be discussed openly with your primary care doctor. So adjustments can be made because a lot of times physicians may assume or doctors may assume that you're taking the medications and you're really not and just making adjustments based on that as well as if you're compliant with a nutrition plan. I usually tell patients that communication is going to be important to better manage their diagnosis of diabetes and that if you're not able to tolerate certain medications, if you're not quite understanding how to monitor blood sugars at home, if you're not understanding the nutrition plan that well, these are things that we can work around and figure out how we can better manage your diabetes if it's some misunderstanding or if you're not able to tolerate certain medications. And so adjustments can be made appropriately and we can get to the goal of either not having to increase uh, certain doses of medications or add medications on. And believe it or not, some of my patients are able to come off of medications and are able to manage their blood sugars through healthy nutrition and exercise. So if that's motivation for any of you listening, you know, that should be something that you should be aiming towards for many of you. But please remember, each plan in regards to management of patients who have been diagnosed with diabetes or prediabetes is individualized. Some of you may be asking yourselves, why does so much go into making sure that diabetes is managed appropriately? The main reason is, is that we want to prevent some of the long-term complications that many people who are diagnosed with diabetes are at risk for. And some of those we've already talked about at the beginning of the show in that diabetes is the number one cause of kidney failure, lower limb amputations, and blindness in adults. Also, I want to emphasize another complication that's prevalent for patients um, living with diabetes, and that is heart disease. Having a diagnosis of diabetes automatically increases your risk for heart disease, and it's the leading cause of death in patients living with diabetes. And the reason that you have so many of these long-term complications or 
possible complications from diabetes is that high blood sugar, especially when it's not controlled, can take its toll on your body over long periods of time and results in damaging to your blood vessels that supply the heart, increasing your risk for heart disease. And so in regards to lowering those risks, to, of having heart disease, you want to number one, make sure that you're controlling your blood sugar. So either that's making sure you're taking your medications if um, necessary, of course, maintaining a healthy lifestyle of well-balanced nutrition and exercise. Also, you want to make sure that your cholesterol is under control in addition to making sure that you're not smoking because smoking increases your risk for heart disease, as well as if you have a history of high blood pressure, keeping your blood pressure under control, preferably at a blood pressure reading of 140 over 90 or less. However, if you already have the diagnosis of some form of heart disease or kidney disease, your blood pressure may need to be more aggressively controlled and your blood pressure goal should possibly be at 130 over 80 or less. However, this will be something that needs to be determined by your primary care doctor or an endocrinologist who is a specialist who manages diabetes. And so, Let's talk more about another complication, which is kidney disease. Some of you already may have heard about this complication in patients who've been diagnosed with diabetes and that um, some of these patients end up in end-stage renal disease, which is basically where your kidneys have completely failed and now you require dialysis. And this complication is often due to... If you're not controlling your blood sugars, increases your risk and also not controlling blood pressure if you happen to have um, high blood pressure in addition to a diagnosis of diabetes. So it's going to be important, number one, that you possibly uh, be on medications as well to protect your kidneys, especially if you have known kidney disease, as well as um, making sure your blood pressures are controlled and and taking those appropriate blood pressure medications if necessary, if you have a history of high blood pressure. And also you want to make sure that you're staying hydrated and not consuming a bunch of soda, juice, and teas, making sure that your body is staying hydrated with more water. So doing those things will likely prevent you from developing kidney disease Another long-term complication risk, in addition to kidney disease as well as heart disease, is that you have increased risk for lower limb amputation, where you may hear about individuals losing a toe, foot, a limb below the knee, or the entire limb itself. And the risk for that is the same as for heart disease as well as kidney disease. If you have high blood sugar circulating around in your bloodstream, it increases damages to the blood vessels of the body and especially in your lower leg region. And that's why it's important for individuals to make sure that they are checking their feet daily to make sure that there's no sores or cuts at on the bottom of their feet to increase the risk of what we call a diabetic foot ulcer, which potentially can become infected. And if left untreated, you're at risk for amputation. In addition, if you think about it, if you have poor circulation secondary to uncontrolled blood sugars, you have poor wound healing, which results in developing these potential sores that don't heal, become infected, and then result also in amputation risk. So you can also hear about um, the risk of individuals developing diabetic neuropathy where you have burning sensation in your hands or feet and it can decrease the normal sensation in these areas. And like I said, 
before, that's why it's important to make sure that you're checking the bottom of your feet, because if you develop this, especially from uncontrolled blood sugar, because it's damaging the nerves, it can decrease your sensation to tell if you stepped on something and it cut your foot. And especially if you're not checking your feet every day, it could increase your risk for infection and delay treatment and therefore resulting in potential amputation. Also, getting your eyes checked annually as a person with living with diabetes, because It's the number one cause of blindness in most adults. And it's either due to a term what we call diabetic retinopathy, which is basically you have high blood sugar circulating again in the bloodstream. However, it's doing damages to the blood vessels that supply the retina, which is the area to the back of the eye. And so that's how you end up with blindness from uncontrolled blood sugar, as well as people who have been diagnosed with diabetes has an increased risk of what we call glaucoma, as well as cataracts, which are complications that may increase risk for blindness in adults. Lastly, another long-term complication of diabetes, especially if it's left under uncontrolled, is that you have what we call diabetic gastroparesis, which is basically you have damage to the blood vessels that supply the stomach area, and this de- which results in delay of the emptying of the stomach when you eat certain foods. So if your digestion is delayed because of diabetic gastroparesis, it results in nausea, vomiting, you have increased bloating, decreased appetite, weight loss, because you're not able to digest and pass food through your digestive system appropriately. People may even manage symptoms by eating smaller frequent meals. However, there are medications to control this as far as your symptoms is like nausea, vomiting, or give you something to help empty the stomach within a certain period of time. However, you don't want to get to that point. And the way to do that is by, of course, controlling your blood sugars. And it's the same thing as well for preventing other complications of uncontrolled diabetes. As a result, it's going to be important for people who have not been diagnosed with uh, diabetes that you maintain your routine annual physical so you can undergo age-appropriate screening. And that may include screening for diabetes. And that's for most adults when you do go for an annual physical. In addition, for those patients that have been diagnosed with prediabetes or diabetes, it's going to be important that you maintain your routine follow-ups with your primary care physician or your specialist, the endocrinologist who manages diabetes to make sure that number one, your blood sugars are controlled, that you're having your annual diabetic foot exams, and that you're getting your routine eye exams to rule out any diabetic eye changes. In addition, I forgot to mention that it's very important that you also maintain dental health as well to prevent development of an infection in your bloodstream. Again, before I get out of here today, I just want to encourage you to make sure that you're getting your routine annual physicals so you can be screened for diabetes if it's age appropriate, as well as being able to recognize signs and symptoms. So not only you can recognize potentially yourself, but also um, as well in families or friends so you can pass the information uh, on to them to encourage them to be seen by their primary care doctor or physician, as well as 
encouraging you to adopt healthier lifestyles, including healthy nutrition as well as exercise. Because diabetes, a majority of cases can be preventable, especially when it comes to type 2 diabetes based on the risk factors that we kind of discussed during this episode. Or even possibly type 2 diabetes can be treated with healthy lifestyle choices alone. So that being said, if this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your streaming platform of choice. And together we can beat diabetes. And this is your host, Dr. Dion. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and feel free to tell your family and friends to check out the podcast. And remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice.